We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome back, everybody. Steve with Suspidel coming at you with Charles Coulomb, the once, the one, the powerful, the great, the almighty, the man behind the curtain. Gosh, not that almighty. I was going to go to Britain this weekend. <laughs> well, I was thinking now, the man behind the curtain is the man behind some other curtain, not the, not a curtain jiggling all the things. <laughs> gosh, no, not, that's for sure. I, I, I don't know. Vincent Price, maybe. That's... That's who I miss more than anything right now is Vincent Price. <laughs> he would know what to do with all this nonsense. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like Chicago years ago had this song, Harry Truman, America needs you, Harry Truman, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'd say it's Vincent Price we need at the moment. <laughs> he would understand what's going on better than anybody. But, uh, no, I, actually, I was going to, I was going to be uh, in England. Uh, actually, yeah, I was going to be in England right now. I'm not. I'm here in Austria. The reason being that, firstly, my flight to Vienna was canceled and the flight was delayed until this evening. Well, until 5.30, about an hour ago. Uh, yeah, that's about right. Uh, but then, in the morning, it turned out the three people who visited the school last week had the coronavirus. So we're locked down. <laughs> I ain't going no place. <laughs> so... Uh, and uh, you know, I was uh, I was going to be right right about now. I'd be doing a show, shooting a an interview uh, in London, and and then afterwards going out with friends I haven't seen since February to celebrate. And so instead, anyway, said, we make the best. Of I what said we, we can. got him. So we're, we're that's right. <laughs> that, you got. If me. you want another contingency plan, we're it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look. When you get handed lemons, you make lemonade, and that. Uh, I'll bring the vodka for you. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> even better. These days, I could use a lot. Well, it's it's been a, a weird week here in Lake Wobegon, my hometown, out here on the prairies. Oh, sorry, that's another personality who says that. Uh, but it has been a weird week, and I have been had my face thrust into something I had never known of before. Yes, you've been posting a lot of a certain topic on your social media platforms. Well, I have. I have. And I have because it's really driving me crazy, not least of all because it's uh, backed by our tax money. Now, just as a, a little revelation, ladies and gentlemen, I put Steve Cunningham through perhaps 15 or 20 of the worst moments of his life. Because I forced him to read three things prior to coming out. Would you like to share with the audience what I had you read? I will help the audience even better. I will sh I will make sure they will be linked underneath the video for show notes for their perusal afterwards. <laughs> oh, boy. Misery is contagious. Very nice. 
It's the gift that keeps yes, on indeed. giving. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, <I'll, laughs> yeah, like a, a blow to the head with a blood <laughs> instrument. Well, basically there were three things. One was put out by the branch of the Smithsonian Institution. That means that you're paying for it if you're a taxpayer. Called the National African American History and uh, Something Museum. Now, before I say anything else, I've got to tell you, I've always thought we needed a good black history museum in this country to showcase the uh, achievements of people like Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver and Zora Neale Hurston uh, and the Tuskegee Airmen, the Buffalo Soldiers, the six candidates, the six black American black candidates for sainthood. Um, all that sort of thing. I'm a big fan uh, of the Kansas City Monarchs, uh, the, you know, the Negro Leagues. Well, you see, the Negro Leagues, the Negro um, uh, film industry, mm -hmm. the whole network of institutions that blacks had to build up for themselves under Jim Crow. I was, I was, I haven't seen it yet because I've been here and I don't think it's been released, but I was pleased as punch that they came out with a, uh, a movie on the Green Book. Uh, I don't know if you saw that or heard about it, but. Well, basically, uh, after uh, the automobile became a big deal. See, prior to that time, from 1890, Plessy versus Ferguson, which brought in legal segregation on the railroads. Mm -hmm. uh, from that time until the 20s, the blacks wanted to travel. They were stuck in segregated trains or buses. And usually the um, amenities weren't as good. And my father always used to say separate but equal wouldn't have been so bad if it had really been equal. But it wasn't. That was the problem. Uh, anyway, um, long and the short of it is that when the automobile came out, this was great. Because now they didn't have to suffer the uh, indignities of segregated travel. But that brought a new, a new problem. There were things called sundown towns, which were towns across this great country of ours where blacks could not be after sundown, hence the name. Mm -hmm. And if they were, things could be unpleasant. Uh, there were a lot of hotels and restaurants and gas stations that would not serve blacks. So, you're driving across country, what are you going to do? The great thing about humanity is our ingenuity. And a fellow named Green, that was his last name, but it was also kind of a good coincidence because he had so many travel guides, the Red Book, the Blue Book, and so forth. So the Green Book was a listing of businesses across the country of all kinds, uh, gas stations, restaurants, hotels, and so forth, that would do business with black people. And this allowed, if you had your Green Guide, you could drive in comfort and safety from one end of the country to the other only stopping in places we'd be welcome. Well, you may wonder how Mr. Green managed to pull this off because where do you get that kind of reportage? The answer is he worked for the post office. He was a postmaster. And he uh, had friends and then informants literally in post offices all over the country because then is now the, uh, the post office was one of the branches of U.S. government that uh, did in fact employ a lot of blacks even then. So, uh, and then, of course, eventually, once they got a client base, clients would start, you know, customers would start doing the reporting as well. So, 
pretty soon he was able to issue a pretty good annual guidebook. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the kind of thing that I would put into a black history museum. But instead, we have this analysis of whiteness, which is the most infuriating thing imaginable because it characterizes as a purely white phenomenon anything decent or necessary to hold a society together or to get anywhere. But basically, it's white to think in terms of being on time. It's white to plan for the future. It's white to want to do jobs. It's This is all, and, and by by definition, the way they presented it, these are all terrible, oppressive things that we've forced other people to conform to. Yeah, they even put, like, it's white privilege to rent a house. And- no, it's white privilege to be married and have kids, I guess, as opposed to fathering uh, a ton of them all over the place or mothering them by several husbands, or not husbands, uh, baby daddies, I guess. Uh, I mean, the... It, and the worst of it is the implication there. And this is how you could tell it was a white chick that came up with this stuff. I don't want to mention her name, but it was Judith Katz. Uh, she, what she's basically saying is that non-whites, and specifically blacks given the context, are by nature stupid, lazy, incapable of making decisions, uh, just sort of living in the moment, you know. I mean, be- I, if I were black, I mean, I'm white and I'm outraged. If I were black, I'd want to. I want to strangle a bloody woman. And yet, this thing is signed off to, on by God knows how many uh, black civil servants, and and your tax dollars are going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I mean that that is bloody outrageous. But wait, there's more. The second document I gave you was from the National Park Service. Now, the National Park Service have a very laudable series of sections on histories of Americans, European Americans. Yes, that's the phrase they use, which I've always preferred to white, by the way. African Americans, Asian and Pacific Islander Americans, Native Americans, and Hispanic Americans. And these all are actually very well done. But introduced as a new ethnic group in 2016 at the order of the then President, Commander-in-Chief, Prophet, and Trustee and Trust, as our presidents are called, uh, Barack Obama was LGBTQ MLXL5. That was when the Stonewall Inn was made a national historical monument and so forth. And again, that's your tax dollars at work. And again, the President of the United States has done nothing about it, uh, just as he hasn't done anything about, oh, gay marriage, etc., which he says is the law of the land. Mm-hmm. I know these are hard sayings. But you got to bear one thing in mind about uh, Mr. Trump. I make two comments about it. One is that he doesn't really have an ideological center. I'm sure that when he gave that speech on the 4th of July, he meant every word of it. It was a very stirring speech, but it was very sentimental. 
there's no body of philosophy or ideas behind it. Pure pragmatism married to sincere sentiment. And that, I think, is what dominated his judicial appointments, which have turned out to be so horrific. So, why is this? And why is he so quiescent on the LGBT, etc. thing? Well, because whatever else he is, Mr. Trump is also a man of his class. Mm -hmm. And people of that class do not really have a problem with LGBTQ, etc., considering that so many of them are. And it's a perfectly acceptable thing. Um, this doesn't mean he's part of some deep, dark conspiracy, some sort of lavender mafia or the Haman term. But people generally tend to think somewhat similarly to other people of their particular type. Mm -hmm. It's in the water. Like uh, the fish have to breathe the water. It's in the water. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, any group you're in, uh, take trads. You know, traditionalist Catholics have a certain, I mean, there are many divisions among us. But there are certain things we have in common, and there's just no question about. There is no doubt in my mind that every traditionalist Catholic thinks abortion is murder. Now, it's not like the order has come out from Trad Center telling us that this is what we have to believe. If you don't believe it, you lose your Trad card. It's not like that. There's no deep, dark conspiracy of Trads telling us what to think. But the fact remains that there is a commonality of thought among us, mm -hmm. which is actually greater than the differences. And as a result, much more apparent to outsiders than to us, mm -hmm. if that makes sense to you. So, I mean, to a lot of outsiders, we would all look like we were lockstep. Now, we know that there are all kinds of fights between constitutionalists and integralists and libertarians and all this kind of stuff, monarchists versus Americanists and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But to an outsider, well, oysters look different to other oysters. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say it's not that Trad Central is running a conspiracy. It's simply that people of a given type more or less think similarly. And so it is with the uh, milieu from which the president arose. Now, having said that, He's not going to get rid of that, at least not on his own. And he's probably not going to get rid of Judith Judith Cantz uh, and her uh, cats, rather. I keep wanting to say Judith Krantz, which would be doing a disservice to one of our best-known romance writers. <laughs> it's Judith Katz is the bad girl. Judith Krantz is the writer. Anyway, um, the third is not from government for once, but from a government-subsidized institution, academia. And do we want to tell the studio audience what it was? <laughs> uh, more of the uh, LGBTQRS uh, education. Only with an emphasis not so much on LGBT, although it mentioned it, but on structures of power. Now, if you bring these three things together, these three currents of the modern diversity drivel. Uh, the whiteness card, the LGBT card, and the feminist card. Well, 
you'll understand exactly why buildings and statues have been going up in flames and been pulled down this past month and a half. Yeah, I mentioned uh, to you off camera the uh, little book by somebody that wasn't white, Manning Johnson. Yeah. yeah there's the book title, Communism, Color, Color Communism, Colors, and Common Sense. You can get this free online, guys. It's PDF. I bought it for five bucks on Amazon. Uh, in the chapter, The Real Uncle Tom's, there's a, he's got two back-to-back chapters that I think everyone should read. Chapter six and seven. Seven is on creating hate. Uh, but this talks about how uh, the top white communist leader, leaders know that racial as well as other differences between peoples have existed over a long span of years and will continue to exist even after centuries of re-education under communist rule. They also know that these differences can be used to play race against race, nationality against nationality, class against class, and advance the color of communism, cause of communism. Posing as a friend of the Negro, as he says, they, under the guise of a campaign of Negro rights, set race against race in the cold-blooded struggle for power. Their hypocrisy and falsity of their claims are clearly revealed in a number of instances. And in creating hate, he mentions a list of things that they'll go for to make them feel sorry for themselves, to blame others for his failures, ignore the countless opportunities around him, to be jealous of the progress of other racial and national groups, to expect the white man to do everything for him, to look for easy and quick solutions as a substitute for the harsh realities of competitive struggle to get ahead. The- well, that's very true. Very, very true. And the problem, of course, is that this has been going on since his time. This has been going on for over 50 years. It's come to fruition now. But this stuff has to be cut out, root and branch, from our institutional life. From the churches, from the government, from the schools and academia, uh, from the media, and from the private industry. Now, how do we do this? Well, for one thing, the reason why it was able to happen was because the people who pushed it knew what they wanted. Uh, so we have to know that too. And we have to know we don't want this crop. It has to go. In a way, we're kind of fortunate because it has become so grotesque. You really would have to be brain dead to fall for it. Now, mind you, at the same time, the population has been so dumbed down that we have a lot of brain dead people running around. And Jay Leno has a great line on his commercial. Don't overestimate the power of stupid. Well, that's true. That's true. Stupiditas omnia vincit. But, but, it's also good to remember that the leadership is just as stupid. There's no smart anymore. I think even George Soros is probably a senile. So, what, uh, what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. First, we recognize the thing for what it is, and we recognize the catchphrases. Intersectionality, structures of power, whiteness, privilege, internalizing. Whenever you hear that crap, even if you don't understand it, indeed, particularly if you don't understand it, you know that the morons are at work. So what do you do? You say no. Uh, if you're asked to participate in diversity training you know, under whatever guise, no, I'm not doing that. 
unless you pay me double. I know what you're thinking. A lot of you could very well lose your jobs for it. Yeah. But if enough of people did it in one place, mm -hmm. it might make the uh, management think twice. And the great part of it is you don't even have to justify it. And this is a mistake conservatives often get into. They try to justify. They try to give a reasonable explanation for their stance. The answer is no. You know what? It doesn't matter why I don't want to do it. Maybe I think it's going to give me a brain tumor. Maybe I'm allergic to excrement. I don't know. Maybe it just makes my tummy feel bad. But I'm not doing it. There's a no. remember, remember Rescue Nine One One. Yeah, vaguely. I never watched it. Dennis Leary. Yeah, I didn't watch it either. But there's a, a clip out there on YouTube land of uh, diversity training. They all come in and they're supposed to have this one lady tell them about you know how you can't say this word or that word, and they're making fun of the. You got the Italian making fun of the Italian words, and uh, everyone's coming up with oh. their own names. And Dennis Leary finally gets up and walks out, and to the point of that. You can send me in here and fire me and find me and make me go through this training the day I don't pick up and list the litany of names out of a burning house. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, the same is true of some of these some of these bloody tests I give you. My personal favorite is always if you've got X number of people in the lifeboat and there are one or two too many, who do you get rid of? Mm -hmm. You know how you how you end that real quickly? I'd blow a hole in the boat. That way we all drown. See? No need to make a decision now. No need to choose one over the other. We're all we're, we're all biting it. Bye-bye. All dead. Everybody grab their uh, log. <laughs> yeah. You know, good luck. I mean, I, I, we've got to stop taking this garbage, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to stop taking it now no more diversity training no more equal opportunity orientation no more nothing like that if it does not if it is not germane to whatever it is we're doing whether it's in academia or in business or anything else then out it goes unless they want to make room for your religion in the workplace because that's what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a religion. And that, too, is a good response. I'm sorry. I've got a religious objection to it. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you're Catholic? No, because I've got an IQ. But um, whatever the case, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to figure it out on your own. We've already taken too much of this garbage. And what's the result? The result is Mission San Gabriel Brand. The result is that statues of Columbus and Father Sarah are being pulled down. And forget them. <laughs> statues of Robert Shaw and, and, and Abraham Lincoln. Shoot, they're decapitating Christ statues right now. Yep. And, and desecrating them. So you know what, ladies and gentlemen? No more. No more. And again, if your boss or somebody has a problem with that, I realize times are tough. We all need work. But maybe that job is too expensive. 
I mean, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Exactly. Exactly. Maybe by staying at that job, you're making a deal with the devil. And maybe you should tell him that. And I know it's easy for me to say that because I'm not working on such a job and I don't have wife and kids who are dependent on me. I understand how tough this can be. But I also understand that if we don't make a stand here and now, if, it is, if this stuff is not stopped within the institutions, it will be stopped from outside the institutions. There will be a reaction to this thing. And it will be violent, and it will be nasty, and it will victimize innocent people. It will throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Uh, the people that have pushed this stuff the most, the Judith Katzes of this world, um, they're the sort who will be made to suffer it. And they don't see it. They don't understand it. But you have to be smarter and stronger than all of that, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to try to stop it I'm thinking now. of the full machine line of uh, when he's talking about the Reds. Uh, they have all the fire, no truth. We got all the truth, but no fire. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, since then, we've been willing to compromise it even. I mean, we're certainly not. You know, a friend of mine pointed this out to me. What a difference it would have been if JFK had been a really believing Catholic. Now, it, he might or might not have been elected president anyway. But if he were, and don't forget, it wasn't 1928. In 1960, Catholics were still quite, uh, quite powerful in this country. Mm -hmm. And the church itself was still very united and still meant something. Imagine if the day I was born, November the 8th, 1960, we had had a Catholic president who really did put the faith first. Yeah, instead of that little Baptist uh, speech, he doesn't say he's yep. going to be free from the vicar of Christ and free from Rome, that he'd establish the kingship of Christ and listen to the vicar in Rome. Well, I mean, at the very least, he could have done what Belloc did. When he was running for election, mm -hmm. which was, uh, he stood there in front of the people and he said, now, I understand that a lot of you have a problem with me because I'm a Catholic. He pulled the rosary out of his pocket and he said, this is a rosary. I pray with this every day. Now, if, you have, if any of you have a problem with my being a Catholic, I don't want you to vote for me. And if I should lose, I will thank my God that I was spared from having to represent such a band of bigots. And they won. Yeah. Sometimes telling the truth actually does pay off. So we have to stop this, ladies and gentlemen, because if we don't, as I say, it will be stopped for us in ways we're not going to like. Uh, years ago, you know, I realized that I... I have uh, red state views and blue state tastes. Well, if the inevitable reaction hits in, it's going to be a long time before I get to go into my favorite latte shop. 
you know, I'm, a, I'm not going to be able to listen to a great deal of PBS specials. You know, it's going to be a long time before we hear Peter, Paul, and Mary on TV. <laughs> That's all going to get flushed, Jillian's all going to get flushed. So, well, I mean, it'll be bad. I, I, I can well imagine this. No, oh, yeah. You, kind of, I, you see it with the, I mean, down the street in Georgia, Stone Mountain, Georgia, you had the uh, uh, Black Panthers marching on Stone, uh, Stone Mountain. Well, now what happens when uh, 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 the, the counterforce, shall we say, mm-hmm. means them and shoots them dead? Suddenly everything's different. And imagine, if you will, government attempting to use the demoralized law enforcement whom they've already hung out to dry and abused. What do you think is likely to happen? That the Popo will turn their guns on people with whom they sympathize? Or they'll say, hell no, we won't go. What's like there, one wonders? Especially if we have a Biden-esque figure as president. I mean, people have very short memories, but I remember the last year of President Obama's reign. When the sheriff of Milwaukee declared mm-hmm. that uh, the president of the United States had declared war on law enforcement, people forget how bad things were that last year. Now, if now I, I, I actually, I do think that the Trumps will be reelected, and I think there's a very good chance we get both houses of uh, Congress. Now, that on one level doesn't mean anything; on the other level, it does. What it means is that we'll have some breathing space. Four years to try to clean up 50, 60, 70 years of garbage in our institutions. We may or may not succeed in doing that, but we'll have that breathing point. If we don't, then all that garbage will be backed at the federal level, directly by the President of the United States. And that's where things will get really annoying more quickly. Now, mind you, uh, if the Trumpster is elected, it may be that we'll just that, that four years of breathing room it won't do for much. It'll go quickly, the way the past four years did. And um, Mr. Trump will be unable, perhaps, to breed a, a proper successor. And then we'll get whatever the Democrats give us. And then it'll happen. But either way, either way, when they come back to power, it will be the beginning of the reaction. Because you see, one thing is with the Republican in the White House, uh, a lot of conservatives always feel safer than they do normally. Well, we'll let the big boys in Washington handle it. But you'll notice, whenever you've got a Democratic president, that's when people get all excited. That's when you start having compounds of this kind of thing. So, I was on uh, top of what you said about Trump being elected. You, what we keep talking about localism. Better get better vote for your state house and locals during these times. Oh yeah, if you have that four years, you better you better believe it. You better uh, you better follow city hall. You better follow the county courthouse. You better follow the state house like a hawk. <laughs> exactly. And you 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 better you better start voting those morons out because you know they've shown what they're made of. Uh, now, if you replace them with decent people, well, 
if we get a decent president in four years, he'll have help at the local level. And if not, there'll be resistance at the local level. And we've seen it already. I mean, you know, various local officials refusing to carry out uh, insane orders from different agencies. Well, there'll be more of that. Either way, I do see civil conflict in the future. And I do, if things do not change radically, I see eventually the rise of a strongman. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who that's going to be. He won't be, I mean, he'll be considered violently right-wing, but that could mean anything at all. And it'll be completely dependent on his personality. How good he is, how evil, how sane he is, how nuts. Then I'll be a question just who he is and what his story is. And there's no way we can tell that right now. Uh, he's somewhere. He's somewhere right now. I, gosh, I feel like Benjamin Cream, you know, used to take out those full-page ads for the uh, the return of Lord Matria, <laughs> which never happened, thankfully. But uh, he'd always do it. And so now I feel a little bit like him announcing the coming of the strongman. The difference being that I have no idea who he is, but I'm pretty sure he'll show. As soon as nature abhors a vacuum, and as soon as our civil society is fragmented enough, as soon as there's enough internal conflict, such a person will arise. They always do. It's not that I've, I've got some deep, dark, psychic powers. It's just that I know my history. Yeah, because if you did, you wouldn't be stuck in Austria with a fan on you, sweating your brains out. <laughs> or maybe I would be. <laughs> Maybe I didn't notice I was nowhere near my home when Mission said Gabriel burned. I was safe 6,000 miles away. So how do we really know? It could be that, now I will say this much. Uh, uh, last week I went out to Hallstatt, you know, which I have to tell you is the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. Incredibly beautiful. And I told the friends I went out with uh, out to get out there, I said, actually, I've got the best of both worlds. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, on the one hand, I'm living in a really neat country right now, a very, very wonderful place. And on the other, I, I can moan and groan about being in exile and win sympathy from all. Well, so are you enjoying yourself, Mr. Coulomb? Yes, of course. As much as one can. It was the best exile. of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And as my father would say, milk it. <laughs> but no, honestly, I, it is a weird feeling being here. Because, of course, Austria has its own issues. But at the moment, they're nothing like ours. Uh, and it's such a pleasant country. And the faith is still so much a part of regular life. That's what I was you know, about to ask you. Do you think the big difference is the Catholicism that's been in Austria and other European nations for hundreds of years versus? Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, they, they have something to fall back on if they choose to. What have we got? So what you're trying to Old say Hollywood. is the solution to maybe our problems is conversion of your cities, counties, states? Well, ultimately, that's the only real answer at all because the... The American dilemma is, the, let's put it this way, political solutions are like Band-Aids. 
and I really do not want to talk down Band-Aids. You know, Band-Aids can be real good. Oh, yeah. Now, mind you, uh, a Band-Aid's not going to help your terminal cancer. But if in the midst of your terminal cancer you cut your hand, trust me, just, uh, don't, don't you be as turned up your nose at no Band-Aid. But having said that, our problems are cultural that are reflected in politics. And, of course, cultural issues are really religious. Politics follows culture. Culture follows religion. The iron law of history. Mm -hmm. And when you've got deep-set political problems, as we do, the answer is always cultural. And if those cultural problems are deep-set, the answer is religious. So, in truth, our problem is that while portions of our country were settled by Catholics, and were really Catholic, like southern Louisiana and northern Mexico and so on, uh, for the most part, we are a Protestant country, settled by many different Protestant sects. Even the Catholics that came are now Protestant or post-Protestant culturally. Uh, they act like Protestants, they think like Protestants. Just like an Italian Freemason will act and think like a Catholic. Even though he might hate the faith, even though he may not believe in God. That's one reason why it is that uh, politics in Catholic countries is so fractious, because the Catholic mind seeks absolute truth, whereas the Protestant mind seeks compromise so that we can get something done. And my, my grandfather used to joke that you can get nothing done in Catholic countries because no one will compromise. And you can get nothing done in Protestant countries because everyone will compromise. <laughs> so the unspoken thing here is that you can't really ever get anything done anyway. But you know, it's just there are different reasons why you can't get anything done. But at any rate, um, so ultimately the conversion of America is what we need. But that's a long-term process. Brian, and mind you. I'm sorry. Brian McCann, uh, Callahan of... Uh well, just look up his YouTube channel. He's a historian out of South Carolina. He used the term kind of from your book, uh, Puritan Empire, which anybody hasn't gotten, you should get. Uh, Puritan, it's Puritan Yankee, he calls it, for what we see today about the destruction of statues, burning of churches, uh, the mindset like that. What do, you, what, do you, what do you see about that? Well, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth to it. The uh, Remember that... New England is the ideological active ingredient of the American psyche. Even though Virginia was settled longer, even though the South has a, a tradition of its own, that tradition has simply not had the same effect on the national psyche that New England has had. And there are reasons for that, uh, which we could go on, to, on and on about. The, uh, the war between the states was one of them, but only one. And even the defeat of the South in the war between the states was precipitated by pre-existing conditions. Um, a very different mindset. The South did not have industry in comparison to the North. They didn't have the railroad capacity. I mean, the, the impassioned speech of Rhett Butler at the beginning of Gone with the Wind. Yes, I have seen the movie, and we'll see it again at some point. I don't care who knows it. And I've read the book. But the uh, impassioned speech he makes about how 
you know, you don't have anything. You don't have weapons. You don't have you don't have railroads. All you've got is pride, and that's not going to win a war. Well, he was right. Rhett Butler in that speech was absolutely right. Everybody said, "Well, you know, we're we're this and we're that." He says, "Yeah, that's all true, but it doesn't mean anything. It's not going to make any difference." Well, that had already happened. You see, the war. The only way that the South could have won is the only way the American colonists could have won against Britain, which was foreign intervention. Mm-hmm. Without that, it wasn't going to happen. And the Southern leaders were not far-sighted enough to realize this. Well, I mean, some of them were. Uh, it's interesting that both Davis and Lee opposed secession, partly out of patriotism, partly because they knew that it's it wasn't going to. It wasn't going to work. That didn't stop them from trying their best, mm-hmm. but you know, they already knew from the beginning, from the get-go, that it was kind of a lost cause. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I did I say the lost cause? They both also it, said that slavery was going to die a natural death too. In all likelihood, it would have, um, and that would have been a better way for it to end, rather than as the as the denouement of uh, the bloodiest war this country ever fought. Uh, I mean, the, the, there's a lot to blame on both sides, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Southern fire eaters for being so quick. And some of them had wanted to get out of the Union for decades. Uh, and then the, uh, the Northern radicals, uh, on the one hand, for wanting to fight to the last man to keep them in the Union, and then once they were back in for wanting to reconstruct them out of existence, thus laying the seeds for Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around in, in that history. But what do you do? You know, I'm still sore over the plains of Abraham. But, uh, we, you know, you have to live in the world you're in. And, and this is what, again makes all of this reparation stuff and diversity and all that such other garbage. Speaking of that, do you see the uh, thing about the mayors wanting... Yes, I saw that. The mayors wanting uh, reparation. Well, God I trillion said, or God billion? Or what, what was the word? What, it's a quadrillion. Yeah. It's a quadrillion. Four quadrillion, I think. I Well, firstly, apart from the fact that the dollar, the value of the dollar would drop to nothing, <laughs> uh, which, you know... Everybody gets the seventeen million or whatever. Hundred fifty one million. Hundred fifty one million in big paper bags. <laughs> you know, it's all given in cash. They could use it to stay warm, you know. Yeah. There's nobody'll take this stuff. Um uh, beyond that, it shows the infantilism of the mayors and the pandering. They just uh as I say, I want compensation on several grounds. I want compensation because I'm French-Canadian. And the central third of this country has been illegally occupied by the English since our defeat. And you guys need to pay up, whatever your color. As long as you speak English, you owe me money. (laughs) A lot. And if that doesn't get you to pay up, well, we Coulomb's uh, family legend have always been connections of Christopher Columbus. 
And now we've got actual proof that the name was originally Colombo, so it brings us that much closer. So we demand uh, we demand money out of all you squatters. <laughs> all those Coulombs should be paid lots of dough by every government uh, from, uh, from Greenland to uh, Argentina. Uh, we, we should be paid money by governments, by private industry, and by individual people for all you squatters. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Is, that, is there another checklist under there? Like no virus or anything? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm sure I could come up with something if I really thought about it. I mean. Well, we're making uh, a list. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, there are all sorts of reasons that I need to be compensated. Uh, unfortunately, if any of them ever came to pass, my usefulness as a human being would be over. <laughs> uh, and I, I really. I am really saddened that the mayors turned out to be such morons. I really am. And again, as I've said before, there's a great deal of institutional racism in this country, and there's an example of it. The whiteness thing, which again, basically claims that blacks are inherently inferior. That is the kind of institutional racism that also needs to be rooted out. Mm -hmm. My late father was very active in civil rights, and I am proud of him for that. He did it at a time when it was not popular. He got out of it when Dr. King became important because he thought Dr. King was a communist. He'd been to the Highlander Folk School, and if he wanted to turn my dad off on somebody, all he had to do was send him to the Highlander Folk School. And I said, well, did you hate it because it was Red Dad? And he said, well, that was bad enough. But Eleanor Roosevelt was all for it. <laughs> You know, for my dad, all he had to do was get Eleanor Roosevelt in favor of anything. He'd have, he'd have come out against a cure for cancer, I think, if Eleanor <laughs> Roosevelt had invented it, you know. But he really couldn't stand that woman. Anyway, um, but I am very, very proud of the stand he took precisely because he did it in the late 40s and the early 50s when nobody was doing it. But the same man opposed forced busing of uh, school children. Uh -huh. Why? Because what he said over and over and over and over and over again was that the law should be colorblind. Uh -huh. Beyond that, people have to figure these things out on their own. Uh, he was against, for instance, invoking the, uh, invoking the uh, Interstate Commerce Clause to end uh, segregation in shops and so forth. Why? Two reasons. One, it was bending the law in weird ways. And he used to say, if you use bad ends to achieve good means, the means themselves are poisoned. And the fact is that when you start twisting the law and interpreting it in such a way that it has no relationship at all to what it's supposed to be, well, you're not the only one who can do that. Somebody else will come along, and they'll get interpretations too. And if it was all right for you to do it, it'll be all right for them. That was his problem with Brown versus the Board of Education. He, uh, as I've said before, his problem with segregated uh, things, apart from the fact that he believed that the law should be colorblind, is that the facilities never were equal. Mm -hmm. But, he said, that was the basis upon which, uh, it, it ought to have been a legal basis upon which it was challenged, not a sociological one. 
So that was his problem with Brown versus the Board of Education. At any rate, where, where was I going with this? Yeah, well, as I say, he believed that the law should be colorblind, which is why he opposed busing just as much as he opposed whites-only schools. As, so you say your dad was Catholic, basically? Yeah. He said, you know, if, if a... Uh, uh, the school should be geographically based. And you know what? If you've got more blacks living in an area than whites, you're going to have a primarily black school. If you've got more whites, you'll have a primarily white school. If you have some of both, you'll have a mixed school. Yeah. End of story. But he was deadly opposed to separate schooling the way they had it in the South. Uh, and he was deathly opposed to uh, forced busing of the sort that I had to go through. So, I mentioned all this. Johnson gets into that, too, in his little book. Yeah, well, it's, it's an important one. It's an important point, because what I witnessed from busing was uh, basically people coming to hate one another. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate, I suppose, because I went to a, uh, a primarily black school in sixth grade, uh, Guardian Angel Pacoima. And then a primarily black and Hispanic school in uh, seventh and eighth grades, uh, Virgin Junior High in Los Angeles. More stabbings than any other school in the city, including the high schools. We were proud of it. But the reason for that is that it was at a boundary, a, a sort of a corner where a lot of different gang boundaries met. Anyway, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because, number one, if I had any white guilt, it would have died at Guardian Angel and Virgil. But beyond that, it would have been very easy to come to hate them. But what I learned is that they're very much like white people in the sense that some of them are very likable and enjoyable, and some of them aren't worth the power to blow them to hell with. Just like white people. Yeah. I grew up on the grew up a street baller, so I mean, I was out there playing. His dad told me, "You want to become a ball? You want to play? Go play with the brothers." And I was usually the only white guy at a fifty on the court, and I would get ride. I would they would give me rides. I would they would take me back from school to uh, back to work when I would be at a sports bar. They say, hey, "Steve, you need a ride?" I could walk about a mile. No, they give me a ride. I never had the white guys on our team which were only two others or anybody else in school give me the time of day but those guys would back me up or anything now see that's the thing i mean uh, and mutatis mutandis frankly i'm much prouder of belonging to the knights of peter claver mm-hmm. than i am of belonging to the knights of columbus given the way the knights of columbus have gone you know the, the knights of peter claver preserved their original rituals in uniform and their original um their original emphasis and of course I can't go into detail about the uh, ceremonies but I can tell you that they're much more um, catechetical now they were like the original Lance of Columbus ceremonies were mm-hmm. well you know back at the beginning of the order but um, so I mean there we are but uh, and this is what drives me crazy, because really, what these whiteness people want to do is keep blacks infantilized, dependent, and down. 
and that you know I mean for some democratic politicians that's a good way of just keeping them in the party without working too hard um, and I mean it's had its effect I remember when Obama was running the first time they asked this old black lady why she was going to vote for him and she said Obama going to pay my rent and fill my, fill my refrigerator and I thought ma'am who the devil is telling you this garbage if she's still alive uh, 12 years later I, th I, I would love to ask her well did he ever you know either pay one month's rent or maybe send a sandwich I mean, I have my doubts. Mm -hmm. But you've got something to read, I can tell you. You've got that look of anticipation on your face. <laughs> no, you brought that up, and I started thinking of, uh, as I, know I, I know I heard that from Johnson. Again, I hate to keep going back to Johnson, but he was, he was taking a Dagom hammer and just drilling oh. his nail on the thing. Social equality, here's a page from out of his, uh, what is it, the uh, chapter on, The Real Uncle Tom's. Uh, social equality for Negro is a major slogan of the communists. They use it on one hand to mislead the Negro American and on the other hand to create anxieties and fears among white Americans to better exploit both racial groups. He goes on to a, he goes on to a couple of lists of things in there along with the you know then goes into creating hate. Moscow's Negro tools and the incitement of racial warfare place all the ills of Negro at the door of the white leaders of America. Capitalism and imperialism are made symbols of oppressive white rule and keeping the instructions from the Kremlin. Uh, well, the difference, of course, today is that there's no more Kremlin in that sense. And these instructions, this, this has become so much a part of who we are, of our institutional life, that it has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. You know, the grandfathers of the people in charge might have been taking orders from communists to the Kremlin. But their children just naturally think the way they did. Huh. It's become a, a community of its own. Uh, I'm, I'm still old enough. I remember my parents back in New York would have some of their friends. They had a very wide variety of friends, I have to tell you. I, uh, I used to describe my father, and it was quite true, he was a Taft Republican with an interest in civil rights. You wouldn't see too many of those, I assure you. But as a result, he had an extremely mixed group of friends. And there were several old Jewish communists from the village, you know. And I remember they would preface their remarks sometimes with, comes the revolution, things will be different. And that was, you know, in the same sense that their fathers or grandfathers would have talked about the coming of the Messiah. You know, uh, it was a very messianic feeling to the uh, Jewish communists of the village back then. Uh, very sorry, very sad making, really, to think of people putting, depending their whole lives and, and putting their whole interest and emphasis on something like that that was never going to happen. Because was the revolution, in the sense they were thinking of it happening, was, of course, a good thing, not a bad thing. Was it your book that bring brought up uh, Frederick Douglass uh, finding out uh, what was the I can't remember where I read it from 
the two it was two Irish Catholic boys in Baltimore that convinced him to be free. And they were shocked that when he said that he was a slave and they were shocked about it. He ended up going to Ireland. It's in his uh, autobiography. And he said he gets in Ireland and goes into a pub and no one yells at him. He goes to a church and no one says, get out. You know what? No one says, goes to a business and, and gives him evil looks. He goes, there's something weird about Ireland. And he goes, dot, dot, dot. They were all Catholic. Yeah. That was the way we were. That was the way Ireland was. Yeah, yeah. Now Ireland is a little different, yeah, but <laughs> just a little. So at any rate, uh, but that's 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 my message for today, ladies and gentlemen. Pull this diversity crap out of wherever you encounter it. Don't take it, and don't feel you need to argue with it. Just shut it up. Don't argue. Don't don't engage. Just. No, we're not doing that. And then they say, well, why not? Well, for the same reason, I'm not going to vomit in your lap. For that reason. Okay? I was about to ask no. you, what's a good way to mock it? I think you just did. <laughs> no, I'm not going to vomit in your lap. That's it. The uh, And I'm not going to argue with you about why I'm not going to vomit in your lap. Even if you want it, it's not happening. No. No vomit for you. Yes, I know. With many apologies to the soup Nazi. <laughs> no soup for you. Come back one year. <laughs> no vomit for you. Don't ever come back. <laughs> next. <laughs> yeah, next. And he says the same thing to everybody. It makes you wonder why they're coming into the store. <laughs> vomit is us. What? I don't know what people think they're going to get out of this place. I really don't. But seriously, though, uh, that's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. It has, if it doesn't stop with us here and now, it will be stopped by somebody else who will not be nice. And we will not enjoy living under the in the America that will be established at that point. It won't be fun. So don't take my word for it. Relax. Go along with the flow. Everything will be nice for a while life will be easier for you you may even croak before it happens if you're elderly like me but I promise you your children will inherit it I wonder what they'll think of you so On that do note. it ladies and gentlemen <laughs> do it don't, don't let this stuff go by and demand write the, write the uh, Smithsonian Institution Write the National Park Service. Ask your congressman why the hell your money is going for this stuff. You can see the material. You've got the links. They'll be posted underneath in the show notes as always. So, uh, yes, take a look at them. Take a look at both of them and write your congressman, write your senator, or email them. Demand to know why your money is going to fund this garbage and when Mr. Trump is getting it out of there. Uh, or why legislation isn't sponsored, at least in the Senate, to defund it. Mm -hmm. And it may very well be that this stuff can be defunded through executive action, in which case uh, there's a heavy response. You know what, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Obama put it in. The Trumpster should be able to take it out. Mm -hmm. So demand of your congressman 
And demand of the president. Write him a letter. I mean, it's, you're less likely to care, but you could try. Tweet at him. Or you could ask you could ask his state uh, the state campaign chairman. What's he going to do about this? Uh, use some initiative, ladies and gentlemen. Use your imagination, but get your money out of that stuff. And, and it's the same uh, if you if you have stocks of any kind. If you've got any any investments, uh, look at look up your companies the companies you invest in. See if they have diversity training. If they do, demand they stop it. And if they won't, dump your shares. Buy, you know, buy something else. Invest in uh, Chick Fil A. What's that? Yeah, well, invest local. There's always that. You could always put your money in some local business, you know, or maybe just uh, start going to Ma and Pa stores. It's hard. It's funny how everyone I start talking to, they start thinking local, act locally, think locally more and more these days. Well, that's because you could see it. I mean, but think of it: if you if you were to dump all your shares in AT and T, presuming you had some, let's say that you, you you get your shares out, you've got I don't know a grand. You could blow that grand at Ma and Pa's diner in your hometown. You could invite all your friends to a blowout dinner. Ma and Pa would be happy with you. Mm-hmm. You'd be known, and maybe you could run for a city councilman or alderman or whatever you call it place uh you never know the uh yo i'm gonna vote i'm gonna vote for that guy he's always throwing those those big dinners at ma and pa's and they're free it's funny he only throws them in the month before the election Atoba is good in our town you know because you get to eat a lot free uh don't you think there might be a a connection between the fact that you're eating at his expense the whole month before no I just think he's a very nice person. <laughs> I know, I know his mother. <laughs> yeah, I know his mother. She was always very nice to me. Well, that's great. His brother got beat in the head. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to know his cousin. He was in Vietnam. I don't think he came home. Or did he? I don't remember. Anyway, no, but but that's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Use use some initiative. It's the same with with your union if you belong to a union. You know that the unions are pushing this crap. Mm. And you know that the political funds of the unions are spent for the Democratic Party. So raise the question, why? Now, this isn't going to make you popular. Um, But think of the alternative. Think of bands of yahoos gunning your union leaders down. Think about that possibility. Think about the horrible civil unrest. Think about the disruption of uh, food supplies that this kind of horror always engenders. We don't want to see that in America. So let's stop this stuff now. Let's do it ourselves before it's done for us by people whom we will not like. Amen to that. I appreciate it as always, Charles. Well, I wish I had a happier note to end on. And I, I do. I got a note. <laughs> I'm in Austria. Always stuck on the bright, the bright side. <laughs> That's right. The hills are alive and they're out to get you. Ah, well, no, I, I don't know. But uh, really, on a, on a brighter note, 
autumn is coming. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's on its way, gang. Get ready. I don't know how happy a time it'll be, but remember, I will leave well, you with this thought. Well, Halloween really worked with everyone dressing up in masks already. It's kind of like a Halloween now. <laughs> well, there, there's that. There's that. But at least you'll be able to carve the pumpkins and so forth and put out the Indian <laughs> corn and the displays on the porches and stuff. But, no, I, um, I'll, I'll share a little story. The first Christmas that I was away from home in 1983, it was really unfortunate and unpleasant, the whole the circumstances and everything else. My first Christmas away from the family. And I was very depressed about it. But about a week before Christmas, and I had very little money, too. I was... Uh, I was really, really strapped. So a combination of not being at home and not having a lot of money, it made it seem like it was going to be a pretty dull Christmas. Well, about a week before Christmas, I was at a bar. I was drinking a glass of port and looking at the beautiful decorations. And I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter if I've got anything or not. It doesn't matter if I can give gifts to get them. It's still Christmas coming. That's what matters. And I'll take delight in whatever there is to be taken delight in. And that was my resolution. Well, uh, the day before Christmas Eve, uh, I was at my club. And the uh, the club uh, manager said to me, you know, Charles, I hate to ask you this, given that you're a member, but the uh, company that was supposed to, they were doing a private uh, event, which they sometimes do, they'd run out uh, the, the public space for private events. Uh, and the company that was supposed to come and have someone watch the coats didn't come. So would you mind playing hat check girl? Oh, and you can keep the tips. Ha, 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 ha. I did, and I did. So the day of Christmas Eve, I found myself the proud possessor of $125 in 1983. And I took that 125 bucks, and I spent all but two of it getting gifts to people. And the two I gave to a bum on the street on Hollywood Boulevard. And then that night, went to midnight mass, and it was wonderful. And then uh, Christmas Day, I went out with a couple of friends. Uh, first we saw it to be or not to be, and then they took me to dinner at the late lamented Michael's Las Feliz at a really wonderful Christmas dinner. And it was not the sort of Christmas I was used to, not necessarily the Christmas I would have chosen or wanted, but it was Christmas. So I tell that to you now, ladies and gentlemen, because the way things are going, we don't know what sort of holidays await us. But whatever your circumstances when they come, put them aside and enjoy to the very best of your ability. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, in whatever way you're capable of doing at the point. Start thinking of, uh, what was that, uh, the time in World War uh, One or Two with the... Uh... 
the Christmas in No Man's Land. Yeah. If they can have Christmas in that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and of course, the, the, the great song, you know, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. And that, of course, is uh, here in Austria. This is beginning to have an unpleasant tone for me. I don't mind staying here for uh, summer, but Christmas will be another story. So I sure hope I can home, come home for Christmas. But if I can, I will. If I can't, I won't. Wherever I am, it'll be Christmas. Wherever you are, it'll be Christmas. Do your best, ladies and gentlemen, to slay the dragons, to uh, to defeat the wrong, and to uh, uphold the right. But also take time to enjoy these gifts that God gives us. And remember that they're foretastes of heaven toward which we all aspire. But all may, of this will be a bad dream. We may put together a Christmas CD of Charles singing. <laughs> well, you know, if we're, if we're still doing this under this weird quasi-lockdown by then, we may do a Christmas special, you know. Christmas from Austria with Charles Kulo. Dick Van Dyke's Christmas special. <laughs> it'll, it'll be just like this, except I'll be singing Christmas carols and maybe reading a few Christmas stories. Yeah, we'll, we'll bring in everybody. We'll bring, bring Vinny in and have him do something. Yeah, <laughs> so he'll MC it. Well, and you know, he's uh, uh, he's got the elf hat. <laughs> I wasn't going to you know, say it, but we, I know. <laughs> when we do our Christmas specials, he wears the elf hat and I wear the Santa hat. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh, I sure hope I'm home for that this year. I really do. <laughs> and, of course, the disco ball at New Year's. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what inspired both of those, don't you? No. Actually. Uh, we were inspired to do that by uh, the McLaughlin group. No. Because every Christmas, uh, McLaughlin would wear a plaid uh, a plaid uh, jacket you know, and, and a red tie and all that. And, uh, Pat... Uh, Pat uh, you know who I'm talking about, Pat uh, Buchanan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would uh, Pat Buchanan would call it his horse blanket jacket. <laughs> but then a week later, they'd all be in formal wear. You know, they'd be in black tie, and Eleanor Clift would be in a gown and all that. It was, it was, it was nice. It was nice. I uh, I miss the McLaughlin group. Uh, I miss, even though McLaughlin was an ex Jebby, it was funny. It was enjoyable. I, uh, yeah, well, that's one of the, one of the things that is in general, when you get uh, to a certain age, nostalgia takes up a big chunk of your day. In fact, I think it's fair to say you come to a point where nostalgia occupies the amount of time in your uh, psyche that women used to, <laughs> you know, you go from the, from, wow, to, uh, It's, in the immortal words of Petula Clark, it's a sign of the times. <laughs> <laughs> and the times, they are a-changing, in the words of Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> they are changing rapidly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen, I, I could go on and on, and I know you could, but we've got lives, I suppose. Yes. Uh, but, no, I look forward to seeing you next week, and I'll let you know if we're still in the lockdown. I uh, I'd, I'd been uh, scheduled to go to the doctors on Thursday, the day after my return, to see if I had the coronavirus. I'm going to keep that an appointment. And I'll tell you, if it turns out I've got the antibodies, proclaim it to everyone. <laughs> 
if I've got those antibodies, guess what? I done had me by my disease. Y'all, yeah. y'all go jump. You can see Charles doing the Snoopy dance. <laughs> well, I, I have the right to. I have the right to. I mean, send me anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I. I'll have my. I'll have my. Uh, my uh, medical clearance. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no fear of virus. You'd be like Wayne and Garth and Wayne's World, just shooting up your your past to get by everybody. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. That's that's what I'll do. And if people don't like it, they can go enjoy the disease themselves. <laughs> uh, well, take care, Charles. Thanks for right. as always. <laughs> You're very welcome. God bless you. Take care.